Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. As we continue in our study of the Ten Commandments, entitled Live the Ten. I want you to think with me of the Ten Commandments. We know that uh, it's hard to live them if we don't know them, but knowing them is not enough. We need to, to live them out. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment is you shall not... Worship idols, close. The third is you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. The fourth is remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The fifth is honor your mother and father. The sixth is you shall not murder. The seventh, do not commit adultery. The eighth, you shall not steal. And the ninth, you shall not lie. You shall not bear false witness. As you're looking with me at Exodus chapter 20 at verse 16, uh, here's another translation that puts it this way. Do not testify falsely against your neighbor. You want to hear the latest statistics in America online? I was actually encouraged by some of these stats. In a recent nationwide poll, the Barna Research Group said that Americans are lying less than a decade ago. Telling the truth is in. Truth-tellers have increased by 50%. What is most encouraging is that lying has dropped most dramatically among teenagers. Lying is down across the board. There is less lying in school, at work, in business, in the courts, and even in the government. The only place where lying is up is in this pulpit today because everything I told you is a lie. None of it is true. You know... The, the truth, we don't have to look very far, that the moral fabric of our country is very thin. It's deteriorating. It's wavering away. To even think for our culture, to even comprehend that this would be in God's top ten, baffles many people. Just to turn on the TV or read a newspaper or to visit a school or to go to your place of employment, there's plenty of evidence to support the claim that Lying is a problem. Bearing false witness is a problem in our culture. In fact, when it comes to telling the truth, most Americans don't even believe that there's anything as truth to be told. With so much subjectivity and relativity that to know exactly what is true and what's not is a loophole that many try to take. In fact, to tell the truth not only is not in, it's not necessarily seemed as possible, the ability to creatively manipulate the facts, to say what you want them to say. It's no longer called lying. It's called being shrewd. In fact, there are many industries that would encourage this manipulation of facts and trying to get across your message no matter what the facts are saying. We live in a culture of half-truths, a culture of innuendo and white lies, of deception, we live in a time when lying is it's not only accepted, it's expected. It's expected that people won't tell the whole truth or all of the truth. Some might ask, what's the big deal about lying? How can this be on the same plane? How can this be in God's top ten? Why is it so important for us to catch what it is that God is saying? Well, one of the main attributes of God is justice and righteousness. And truth is the precondition of justice. You have to have truth to be able to understand and to be able to have justice. 
If you don't know the truth, you can't determine what is just, what is right. When it comes to relationships with the people around you, if you don't know the truth, there is no basis to build trust. Without trust, there's no glue to hold that relationship together. There's no safety for intimacy to take place. One could make the case that there's a direct relationship between the increase of lying in our culture and the increase of divorce in our culture. The increase of the breakdown of the family. So if lying is so important to God, if it's so devastating to us, then why do we lie? I want to take a look tonight at some of the most common categories of lies and identify them and the motive behind them. So track with me if you've got a blue outline, pull that out now. Let's, let's look at number one, lies and why we tell them. The first category of lies would be maybe the exaggerating lie. This is an attempt to make people feel better, to not really want to hurt their feelings. We want to make them feel better, and uh, we want to make ourselves feel better. We will inflate statistics, we'll embellish our resume, at times we'll minimize our own mistakes, and we forget selectively certain things not to share in an attempt to make ourselves look better than what we really are. The motive behind this is insecurity. I've got to establish that I am better than I am. I need to embellish the, the facts so you will like me. If you knew who I really was, if you knew everything about me, then this lie is saying, I don't even know that you would want to be around me. And so exaggerating the truth, this exaggerating lie is at the heart of this first one. Second, we see another category of lying. It's the slanderous lie. One of the most destructive lies. We tell this in order to get revenge with someone. Someone has hurt you or hurt someone that you love deeply, and it appears that they have gone on with their life and they've not suffered much because of what they've done. So you make up a lie in an attempt to make them feel some of the pain and hurt that you have gone through. It's this slanderous lie. The motivation behind this is, is resentment. The tragic thing about this lie is not only does it destroy others, it is self-destructive. A heart of resentment, a heart of unforgiveness gives way to all the terrible things that Jesus talks about when referring to the unforgiven debtor in Matthew 18. It's resentment that motivates this lie. That's why some of the lies happen. Some of it's insecurity, some of it's resentment. But another category is maybe this cowardly lie. This is among the most frequent that we would see or tell or be around. We're afraid of hurting someone's feelings and we want to be polite. And we don't want to hurt them, so we just tell a little white lie. We don't want to be uncomfortable. We don't want to be confrontational in the situation. So we're motivated by fear. And we're fearful of rejection. We're fearful of the consequences of just telling the truth or the fearful of embarrassment and we just choose to make up something else. Well, when someone invites you to go do something, instead of saying, thanks, but I'd rather not, we come up with these little excuses or this cowardly lie to say, well, you know, I'm just too busy or I've got something going on. My favorite that I tell all the time is I'm washing my hair that night. I can't, I can't do that. That's a joke. That's as good as they're going to get. So you can laugh there or like sleep. It's okay if you want to sleep. 
We would let this cowardly lie come in and we would just kind of make up something just so we don't have to deal with the conflict of, of having to tell the truth. I came across an article in a secular parenting magazine a little while back and the title of the article was Lies Parents Tell Their Kids. I want to read just a snippet to you from that. Listen to the counsel of this author in this secular parenting magazine. Let's face it, most parents' lies exist merely as shortcuts to, to tranquility, and I can't drudge up one ounce of guilt about them. Depending on the circumstances, here we go, there's some circumstantial ethics happening. Depending on the circumstances, the truth that you would tell can produce 15 minutes to an hour of wailing with your child. If we would sidestep the truth from time to time, what harm would it do when we may end up saving some conflict in the family? As I step away from the article for a second, there's quite a bit of harm that can happen, and it can set a terrible example for our children. But let's see how she ends this article as she talks about one discussion she had with her son, giving a rationale for her and her husband's lie. She said, son, we lie because we cannot bear to see you in pain. We cannot bear to see you sad or disappointed or frightened. And, and we lied because we're imperfect, but we lied because we loved you. Now that's a message for our kids to learn. I lied because I loved you. I didn't tell you the truth because I, I love you too much to tell you the truth. But we then turn around and try to parent our kids and say, but if you ever lie to me, if you ever say something that's not true to me, then boy, you'll be in trouble. Here inserts this secular parenting 101, do as I say, not as I do. And we begin to wonder why there's problems in the family. In the short run, lying may seem easier and less painful than the truth, but in the long run, it erodes our credibility. It erodes trust. And well, what, what do we do about that? We as a society have become liars. We've become accustomed to it. And for us to see what it means to love God with our tongue, our culture expects people to lie. And we need to go to a different source than some parenting magazine or what culture would tell us about lying. So I want you to turn with me to James chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses uh, 2 through 12, somewhere in there. As we begin to see what would it look like for us to live this commandment, live the ten, and to love God with our tongue, with our speech. To control my tongue, I see here in James that I must first respect its power. I must respect its power. Look at verse 2 through 5. We all make many mistakes, but those who control their tongues can also control themselves in every other way. In other words, controlling my tongue is key to bringing other areas of my life under God's control. Now, let's read on in the text here in James chapter 3. We can make a large horse turn around and go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. And a tidy rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot wants it to go, even though the winds are strong. So also, the tongue is a small thing, but what enormous damage it can do. Though your tongue may be two ounces of muscle, some of you may have a big tongue, maybe a four ounces of muscle, I don't know. It has a lot of power to either save lives or to destroy them. A lot of us underestimate the power of our words. 
any counselor will tell you that the emotional pain and the, the relational hang-ups that a lot of their clients go through is a result of misplaced, careless words from parents or from a, a significant authority figure in their life. People deal with the effects of words that were said to them for many years. Careless phrases or thoughts such as, you are worthless. You're going to never amount to anything. I wish you were never born. Would you just be seen and not heard? And if you would talk to the authority figure, the parents who said this, they probably wouldn't even remember saying it. But to the point, it has impacted this child or this adult child for many decades later. This is helpful for us. If you ask how we can allow this to be different, we need to first confess that maybe we have been affected by a tongue that was not under control. Maybe we have affected someone else who has been the recipient of the damage of our speech. Especially for those of us who have verbal diarrhea, as gross as that may sound, that we just gush and ooze any sewage out of our mouth. And we blame it on a temper, we blame it on rage, we blame it on an emotion, we blame it on just who we are, we blame it on being Irish or whatever it may be, but we need to come back and understand we are responsible for the words that we say. Let's look at the second. I must also recognize its danger. Listen to what James writes next in verse 5 through 7. A tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And the tongue is a flame of fire. It is full of wickedness that can ruin your whole life. It can turn the entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction. For it is set on fire by hell itself. I've shared with some of you my love for camping, and from time to time I'll let my mind wander about where the next camping excursion will be. And as a family, we've been talking about going to Yosemite. And uh, I've been excited about climbing Half Dome and and doing that whole thing. But uh, I've been watching the news lately, and I'm a little concerned. I I don't know what's going to be left if I go to Yosemite. There's been fires, and and they say that they've narrowed it down to just one person, possibly. Just one person who was careless with fire, and it caused a whole forest to blaze. This is one of the things I love about Scripture. This isn't just some kind of fictitious word picture that never happens. This is exactly what can happen with fire. One spark can lead to a fire which can spread and can take down an entire path of forest. Here James is saying this is exactly how our speech can be. We're beginning to see the scope of and the, the magnitude of why God puts this in his top ten and says... Do not bear false witness. Do not lie. Be careful with what you say. It matters. Here in this verse, it says, It can turn the entire course of your life into a blazing flame of destruction, for it is set on fire by hell itself. Instead of using this familiar term, Hades, uh, for hell, it's, it's using the word Gehenna here. In in that day, Gehenna was an actual place outside of Jerusalem. It was used as a garbage dump. And all the filth of the city would accumulate there. And and just as all the evil of our sinful hearts accumulates on our tongue, it's this burning, wretched heap of waste that sets the flame on fire of our speech. 
James is trying to be as graphic as he possibly can to describe the danger of our tongue. In these next two verses, James changes the mental picture for us. And uh, it would be one that uh, any Ringling Brothers circus, you could witness the truth of what he says. People can tame all kinds of animals. Look at your text. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. We have a plethora of examples of how we can tame animals. We think of famous animals who've been tamed. Lassie, Flipper. We think of Gentle Ben. We think of Shamu. But there's one beast even the circus masters cannot tame, and it's our tongue. It's the words that come out of our mouth. Our tongue is full of deadly poison. It's filled with boastful pride, destructive anger, cutting bitterness, flattering lust. There's this owner who was quoted in an article. uh, This owner of a large earth-moving equipment company was in an interview, and this is some of the words that they shared with this reporter. The story goes as this. We used to have a scraper known as Model G. Somebody asked one of our salesmen one day, why was this scraper named G? What was the G standing for? The salesman replied, the G stands for gossip. And like gossip, this machine moves a lot of dirt fast. I don't know if uh, you've met some people like that. Maybe if we're honest, we have been a person like that at one time or another. There are far too many Model G people in our world that they can move a ton of dirt really fast and we use the leverage of our tongue in gossip. Nowhere is there more deadly poison and devastating gossip than at times even in the body of Christ in the church. They infiltrate relationships in the church and they release their poisonous venom infecting the entire body of believers with their gossip pastor jim Simbola, the pastor at the brooklyn tabernacle choir says i know most easily destroying the church today is one thing that stands out in my mind he says it's not crack cocaine it's not bankruptcy it's not even the lack of funds it is gossip it is slander that grieves the holy spirit There are busybodies who cater to the sick appetites of petty people. Those who feed on rumors are small, suspicious souls. They find satisfaction in dropping subtle bombs that explode in the minds of people around them as they light the fuse of suspicion. They're like a cancer that eats away at the health of the body of Christ. And they are divisive and they destroy unity. They find comfort in in only an innocent channel, they say they are. A conduit of unsure information. Their favorite phrase to say is, have you heard? You know, they said, if you struggle with this. Restless evil tendency towards rumor. If you find a twisted kind of joy in hearing dirt about others, it's time that we face up to the sinful condition of our heart as well as the condition of our tongue. 
If you can't say anything genuinely helpful or upbuilding, then do everyone around you a favor and keep your mouth shut. As someone said, it's better to bite your tongue than to let it bite somebody else. If you are a witness to rumor and to gossip, don't silently give ear and listen to it and then confess later, I didn't say it, I didn't have any part in it. When gossip grows, silence is its greatest ally. You are just as guilty as the one who is spreading that rumor. Uh, Pastor Swindoll submits four excellent suggestions to put out the fire of gossip in the body of Christ. And and, and listen to some of Pastor Swindoll's uh, thoughts about gossip that may help us be able to deal with gossip in our life or in the lives of people around us. Responding to rumor by Pastor Chuck Swindoll. One, identify sources by name. If someone is determined to share information that is potentially damaging or harmful, demand that the source be specifically stated. Otherwise, stop it in its tracks. Well, Pastor, I wish you'd get back on topic and and talk about lying, and, and, and now you're starting to make me feel guilty, and you're making me uncomfortable because I may have to do something about somebody else's mouth. Friend, we are accountable for what we say. We are accountable for what we approve of other speech patterns. And bearing false witness falls directly in the category for many topics of gossip. Second, support evidence with facts. Do not accept hearsay. Refuse to listen unless documented truth is being communicated. You can tell. You don't have to be a, uh, a rocket scientist to figure this out. Truth is rarely uncertain. It's rarely fuzzy and vague. Rumors, on the other hand, when exposed to the light, they fade quickly. Third, ask the person, may I quote you? This is my favorite of Pastor Swindoll's ideas of how to deal with gossip. It's remarkable how quickly the gossiper starts to backpedal when they discover that their name and reputation are on the line to be cited as a source for this. When you hear some things that may sound as gossip, just say, you know what? That's interesting. Can I quote you on that fact? If they begin to say, well, you know, I, I didn't hear it, or I'm not sure, this is a good way to put gossip where it needs to be. Put it on ice. Stop it cold in its tracks. Fourth, openly admit, I don't appreciate hearing that. Now this is one that I think that is, should be the most obvious to us, but is the least tackled by the believer. If you have not come in contact with gossip yet in your Christian life, hang on because it's coming. Or do a self-examination, maybe you are helping stir some of that. It would be appropriate for us to stop it in its tracks by saying, I don't appreciate that. That might drive a wedge between you and that person who is spreading gossip. But a friend who will talk that way about someone who's not in the room, given time and the right circumstance, will talk that way about you pretty soon. Be forthright and honest with your displeasure. It's a sure way to halt that garbage spewing from their mouth. And soon you will no longer be a welcoming place for gossip. 
You know, another way that I would add to Pastor Swindoll's list that is one of my favorites, when, when someone gets ready to unload a dose of gossip. You can tell their eyes get big and they're ready to tell you some juicy fact. It's often wrapped in this kind of wrapping of, well, this is a prayer request, but get ready because it's going to be juicy and good. And they begin to talk about someone and they identify who they are. I stop them right there and I say, oh, yeah, I know them. They're one of my friends. And then it seems that their excitement and what they're about to say is a little bit less than what I anticipated from their beginning response. You know what? If we're going to pray for them, do you think it's okay if I contact them and see if this is the way they'd like us to pray? Oh, I, um, uh, I just wanted you to know so you could pray without talking to them. We can stop it in its tracks. I love the thought that silence is fertile ground for gossip to continue to grow. James also tells us that I must redirect its source. I must redirect its source. Jot that down. James reminds us of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde tendency that our tongue has. Look with me at James 3, 9 and 10. Sometimes it praises our Lord and Father, and sometimes it breaks out into curses against those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and curses come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right, James says. But it is so. I heard a story that illustrates the inconsistency we all struggle with when it comes to the use of our tongue. I want to read to you a a story that I heard. A, A large family is sitting around a table for breakfast one morning, and as was their custom, the father returned thanks, expressing his gratitude to God for the food. Immediately after the prayer, as was his bad habit, he began to grumble about the way the food was prepared and its poor quality. His little girl asked him, Daddy, do you think God heard your prayer when we sat down to eat? Certainly, replied the father with a confident air of an instructor. And did he hear what you said about the bacon being too greasy and the coffee being too cold? The little girl asked. Uh, yes, the father replied, but not as confident as before. Then the little girl says, Then, Daddy, which did God believe, what you prayed or what you just said? I don't know if that pricks you the way it pricked me when I read it. There is a disconnect When we begin to see some of the things that come out of our mouth compared to some of the others. And James hits it right on the head. Look at verse 11 of chapter 3 of James. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Can you pick olives from a fig tree or figs from a grapevine? No, you can't draw fresh water from a salty pool. What James is saying is that if you want fresh water, but all you get is salt water, don't blame the faucet. Go to the source. If you want good things to come out of your mouth, but all you hear is filth and destruction, don't blame your tongue. Go to the source, your heart. Once again, Jesus puts it all in perspective with a few words he gives in Matthew Matthew 15, verse 18. Evil words come from an evil heart and defile the person who says them. It all comes down, Jesus says, to where your heart is. That is the source of what comes out of your mouth. There is no evidence that your tongue is connected to your brain. 
But there is tons of evidence that our tongue is connected to our heart. The Ten Commandments are not primarily about what we shouldn't do, but about what we should do, how we should live in accordance with God's design for our life. And here God is saying, embrace my truth. It will lead to freedom in your heart. I want to invite you to stand with me as we have just heard some of God's instruction from Exodus 20. Stand with me and I want you to bow your heads. We're going to pray together. Not only have we heard Exodus 20, you shall not lie, you shall not bear false witness. We've heard James expand that and talk to us how we could love God with our speech, with our tongue. As we close tonight, I realize that you are the cream of the crop. You wouldn't be here on Sunday night if your heart didn't desire to do what God wants you to do. But with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I want you just to ask God to speak to you right now. Because it doesn't really matter what I say about your tongue, your speech. It doesn't even really matter what your person to your left or your right says about your tongue or your speech. It doesn't even matter what you think about your tongue, about your speech. It matters what God thinks. Right now, in your mind, just ask God, how am I doing with loving you with my tongue? How is the things that are coming out of my mouth? Father, we come to you tonight thankful for how you have given us the Ten Commandments. We're beginning to understand that they're not so much about your top ten rules as much as it is about learning about who you are and how you want us to live according to our purpose in you. Lord, I thank you for the fact that you tell us that truth sets us free. I pray that you'll help us to be speakers of truth. We will not get lazy or in gray areas about truth. But we will passionately seek to represent you and what you stand for in every area of our life. Father, there may be some of us in this room that you are challenging us on the issue of gossip. Others, you may be challenging us on exaggerating lies. Malicious lies. A a, a lazy lie of just convenience. I thank you that you don't heap guilt and condemnation. You convict us and want to lead us out of the stubborn path that we are in. So as we take off, we want to go in obedience, Lord. So I pray that before we go to bed tonight, you will give us the courage to make something right that we have wronged with our speech. Lord, let us use the eraser tonight as we trace our life on top of you, Jesus. And we begin to see where we have gotten off path and we're not talking like you would talk. Help us, God, to turn from that, erase that line to all those who were there and present. Give us the boldness 
to not only confess to you, but to make it right with them. Thank you, Father, for what you're doing in us and what you desire to do through us. It's in your Son's powerful name we pray. We say, Amen, so be it, let it happen in our life. Thanks, Father.